Dr. Miller, Greg is joined by his wife, Darla. You could come on up, Greg, and uh, we want to thank uh, her for being here as well. I, I, Greg is an academic, extremely brilliant. He is a great teacher, a, an administrator, but I'm going to find out today if he's a preacher, okay. and we're going to see that. We'll see. And I also believe he's an avid runner, and I know nothing about that, so uh, we are excited to have him. But would you welcome Dr. Miller this morning to our facility? Thank you, brother. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. I first met your pastor a few years ago when he was invited to be an external reviewer for our Bible and theology department at Malone, and I was incredibly impressed. And uh, in fact, uh, the recommendations that he made at that time are things that I have begun and will continue to implement all the way uh, forward here. And I also want to thank you as a congregation because you may or may not know this, but your pastor was named this last year as one of our trustees for the university, which carries no small responsibility for an institution like Malone. So we're very uh, grateful for your sharing of him in that, uh, in that role. Um, you did, Malone's a special place. You did mention our motto, Christ's Kingdom First, which, I, which I'm in love with. Uh, our mission statement, however, is, is fantastic. The mission of Malone University is to provide an education based on biblical faith in order to develop men and women in intellectual maturity, wisdom, and Christian faith who are committed to serve church, community, and world. We are the only university in all of Northeastern Ohio with a mission to provide an education based on biblical faith. And so I am so grateful for this congregation standing with us in prayer as we write a new chapter in the history of Malone University. Thank you so much for being a part of that and for welcoming Darla and I this morning. I'm gonna share a message with you uh, based on the story of the storm on the Sea of Galilee called Bring a Pillow. And uh, when, whenever a preacher um, has a title, Bring a Pillow, it's always a little dangerous. So I hope you didn't actually bring a pillow. Uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, um, in 1990, the spring of 1990, Darla and I were in Boston. I was uh, finishing up my PhD and getting ready to move uh, Darla and our, our one-year-old baby to East Germany uh, to do dissertation research uh, for the next year, which is a story in and of itself. Boston's a great city. I don't know if you've been there before, filled with wonderful museums and cultural experiences. And my parents were in town, and I took them to a little gem of a museum that I loved called the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And there's one painting in particular that I wanted to show uh, my mom and dad. They're from Western South Dakota. They came into Boston to visit with us. And I took them to see this painting. It's by Rembrandt, done in 1633 when he was in his 20s. It's the only seascape that Rembrandt ever did. It's called Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which is, of course, our, our scriptural text for this morning. And I, I love this painting, and I wanted to, to highlight it for them. 
It wasn't very many days after their visit and us looking at this painting that we woke up only to find that it, along with a few other high-value paintings, had been stolen. Uh, in fact, a, a couple of guys dressed as security guards uh, came. They said they were responding to, uh, uh, to a disturbance call. They tied up the museum guards and they literally cut out this painting in its canvas, rolled it up, and it has never been seen since. So we are, interestingly, some of the last people to have seen this particular painting. Now, it's probably in the ba basement of some Saudi prince, I don't know. Uh, but, um, uh, but one of the reasons why I liked it so much, I like it still, and if any of you actually are, have this painting in your basement, would you please let me know and we'll return it to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. One of the reasons why I, I like it is it captures the moment in the storm right after the disciples have woken Jesus up. And um, let's do just a little bit of a quiz here this morning. So, okay, I'm a former college professor, so uh, pop quiz time. Now, how many people should be on the boat in the storm of the Sea of Galilee. So think about it for just a moment. Anybody want to call it out? How many people should be? 13, right? 12 disciples and Jesus. All right, good. You probably cannot tell from this screen, but there are actually 14 figures painted in this painting. Now, it's not like Rembrandt made a mistake. He was trying to make a point. So if you take a look at the next, and, and it's a little harder to tell, but I, I've given you a little uh, in, insert, insert here, and, um, and you can see maybe one of the figures there kind of in, in the dark. 14 of them. Who's the extra one? Rembrandt, probably, yes. Uh, but here's my contention. The 14th person is you. It's me. Rembrandt is painting us into the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He's making a theological point here about us being present right in the middle of the scene. And in fact, all of the figures have a variety of human responses to being in the middle of the storm. Some people are angry. One guy's holding onto his hat. Whoa, Nelly, here we go. Another person in this inset is having a very human experience to being in the middle of a storm. Which one are you most like? When storms happen, what's your natural response? Now, for us to understand the passage upon which this painting is based, I think it's helpful to get a better picture of, of life as it was in the first century AD in what is today the state of Israel. And so let me tell you a little bit about the Sea of Galilee. Now, it, we call it a sea. This is a biblical term, but it's actually more of a lake than a sea. And it's really not even that big of a lake. And if, um, if you take a look at the map of the Sea of Galilee, you can see that it's about 13 miles, well, I'll tell you, it's about 13 miles north to south, 
and about eight miles east to west. And so all the way around is about 33 miles. Now, if you compare that to Lake Erie, you can have lots of Sea of Galilees within Lake Erie. Lake Erie is about 241 miles across and 50, 57 miles north-south. So it's, it's a small lake, but still, when you're in the middle of it, the closest land is four miles away when you're in the middle of this. And the lake has a couple of very interesting distinctives. It's surrounded by low hills on all sides. It happens to be the lowest elevation freshwater lake on the entire planet. On the entire globe, the Sea of Galilee is the lowest elevation freshwater lake. The combination of the low hills around it the climate and the low elevation produces pop-up storms that are known for their de devastating severity. So a storm on the Sea of Galilee is not an unusual occurrence. And if you're caught in the middle of the lake four miles from land and one of these storms hit, it's a serious matter, especially if you're in one of these. This boat, which is an archaeological discovery, sometimes it's called the Jesus boat, or the ancient Galilee boat, was excavated from the Sea of Galilee, and it's dated to Jesus' time. Now, we call it the Jesus boat. There's no, no likelihood that Jesus was actually in this boat. But this is very typical for a fishing boat in the Sea of Galilee in Jesus' day. So let's get the dimensions. This boat is about 27 feet long, that's it, seven and a half feet across, and about four and a half feet high on the sides. Imagine now, there are 13 of you, a sudden pop-up storm in a 27 foot long boat occurs and you are four miles from the nearest land. It is a frightening situation. The story of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, in fact, makes it clear to me that Jesus wanted the disciples to be in the very middle of the lake because they started at Capernaum in the north and they were headed to the land of the Gerasenes in the south. It is literally as far in the Sea of Galilee as you could travel. And it's there that we pick up our story from the Gospel of Mark. Now, this story of the storm of the Sea of Galilee is found in the first three Gospels that we call the Synoptic Gospels, from two Greek words, meaning with and optic, the same word that we get optic. They all kind of see things from the same perspective, the Synoptic Gospels. But Mark adds one interesting little detail, and that's the reason why I love the Markan telling of this story. He adds the detail of a pillow. Here's how the text reads. Mark chapter four, verses 35 to 41. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. 
and a great windstorm arose. The waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? May the Lord add his blessing to his word this morning. So a bit of a recap. Previously, this is like in a television series, previously in the Gospel of Mark, the first three chapters of the Gospel of Mark feature story after story of Jesus demonstrating his sovereignty. He is a Lord over evil forces. He heals a leper and a paralytic. He is Lord over the Sabbath. He teaches the people. This all sets it up for the calling of the 12 disciples. And in fact, this story of the storm on the Sea of Galilee is almost the very first thing that happens after the public calling of the 12 disciples. He calls them to himself, and then they're going to have what turns out to be a pretty challenging first week of disciples. First of all, the first thing that happens are that religious officials from Jerusalem come and they say the reason why he's doing these things is because he's possessed by a devil. Their leader who has just called, called them is accused of being possessed by the enemy. And then his family shows up. Jesus' family shows up and they said they want to talk to him and the crowds are gathered around and Jesus said, who, who is my mother? Who is my brothers? You who are here. This must be extremely confusing. And then just as they are about to get into the boat, Jesus, Jesus said to those who actually were wannabe disciples, foxes have dens and birds have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Seems a very reasonable request, and then I will follow you. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. The disciples must have been wondering what in the world they have gotten themselves into. And then he leads them directly into a storm. You need to know that sometimes when you're doing everything right, sometimes when you have maybe even recommitted your life to Christ and have started to follow him, sometimes Christ leads you into a storm. Now, the disciples, in my mind, ask a they, they ask a really bad question in this story. Um, there are, you know, when you're a teacher, you say there are no bad questions. But actually, there are bad questions. 
really are. So I've heard them all. Um, one of my favorite bad questions is, somebody raise your hand in the middle of lecture. Yes, you have a, you, do you have a question? May I go to the bathroom? I'm like, you are an adult. If you need to go, you don't have to ask my permission. Um, and I love this bad question. Yes, will this be on the test? <laughs> mm. Um, and, but my favorite bad question of all of the bad questions is this. Oh, professor, I'm sorry, I missed miss class. Did we do anything important? <laughs> and I'm always tempted to say, no, we saw you weren't there and we said, what's the point? We should not go on without you. Now, the disciples ask a bad question. They ask, Jesus, don't you care? Jesus, don't you care? Now, it's a bad question, but it's an understandable one. I have been in ministry for about 40 years. And in my experience, this is a prime reason why people lose their faith. They encounter a storm, they encounter something difficult, devastating perhaps their walk with God leads them into something that is really devastating really difficult and they ask God don't you even care what I'm greatly appreciative of is that Jesus actually awoke and did calm the storm he chided them for their lack of faith but he did deliver, and he will for you too. There's an interesting parallel with an Old Testament book where you have a storm, a boat, a sea, and somebody asleep. And that is the book of Jonah. Now, we all know the Sunday school version of the book of Jonah, but if you haven't read it recently, it's only four chapters long. It's a very interesting little book. And it's, it is also, it's another way, besides questioning God's care for us, that we can go wrong when we're in the middle of a storm. Here's how Jonah went wrong. The word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Arise and go to Nineveh. And Jonah ran from the Lord. He ran from the Lord. Now, it's kind of understandable here that Jonah would run from this calling into a storm as well. Because if you know anything about history, Nineveh is the capital of the world's first great empire, the Assyrian Empire. Eighth century BC. They conquered the entire Fertile Crescent area in the Middle East based on the first massive use of iron weaponry. And they were known for their brutality. They, uh, they asked for tribute, not in money, but in piles of human heads, known for their brutality. They would take population groups, splitting families apart, and transport them from one part of their kingdom to another part of their kingdom. 
They destroyed the northern ten tribes. And in fact, the reason why we have the New Testament group known as the Samaritans is because they are the descendants of what the Assyrians did in the 8th century by ripping apart a portion of those ten tribes. In fact, you may have heard the term the lost ten tribes of Israel. Ripping them apart, scattering them across the Assyrian Empire and moving in peoples from other parts of the empire, creating this kind of half-breed that figures prominently in the New Testament in terms of the Samaritans. They were absolutely brutal. If I was Jonah, I would not want to go to Nineveh. Uh, so here's how he faced the storm. He ran the other way. And uh, it said that he went down to Joppa, seaport, and took a ship bound for Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is probably in Spain. So Jonah is thinking to himself here, hmm, this is going to be pretty nice. I'm going to go into early retirement. I don't have to face the Assyrians. Those are nice beaches in Spain. And I think Jonah kind of had a fantasy about Tarshish. He could imagine himself sitting in an 8th century equivalent of a beach chair with 8th century equivalent of sunglasses and getting a kind of, um, I don't know, prophet beard tan line um, in Tarshish the living would be good so he takes off doesn't want to face the storm that God is calling him into and of course you know what happens the storm arises and it says that Jonah was asleep in the boat but unlike Jesus Jonah, I believe, was not asleep in the boat because he had complete trust in the sovereignty of God. Jonah was asleep in the boat because at that particular moment, I don't think he cared if he lived or died. And of course, they drew lots. They came to Jonah, and they said, it's because of you, and he willingly allows himself to be cast into the sea the second chapter is this Jonah coming to his senses. It's really poetic. He's entangled in the seaweed at the bottom, and he comes to his senses, and he cries out to God for help. And God gives him a second chance to enter his calling, his storm. And the third chapter, the very first verse of the third chapter of Jonah, uh, contains what I consider to be one of the most humorous verses in all of Scripture. And it says this, and a second time the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, arise and go to Nineveh. And he arose and went to Nineveh. <laughs> Interesting parallels in this story. So two wrong responses to the storms that God sometimes calls us into. Questioning God's care for us, running away from difficult callings. So what's the right response? What's the right response when we are called into the storm? And it means to embrace the difficult callings that God sometimes lays upon us. And to illustrate this, I need to get this morning really real with you and transparent. Yes, I'm going to tell you a story from my family background. Um, I grew up in western South Dakota. I have one, had one younger sibling, one younger sister, about two years younger than I was. And our family was 
faith was at the center of our family uh, growing up. Uh, but as my younger sister uh, began to become a teenager, it, it became clear that, um, that she had some, some real problems. And if you, if you have never been in a family situation where there's been a struggle with mental illness, um, I'm very happy for you. Uh, that was not the case for me growing up. Uh, today, I think that my sister would have been diagnosed with what we call bipolar disorder, with mood swings that would result in uh, violent outbursts, uh, and uh, such that um, uh, there, were, there were a couple of times where, where we called the police to our house. I hope you've never had to experience anything uh, like this. She was really pretty, and she was determined. I was the older one. I was, uh, my faith was always strong, felt an early call into ministry, uh, my sister, Laura, was determined to be as bad as I was good. And when you're pretty and determined to be bad and a teenager, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. And she did. Um, I think my parents, they were at their wit's end, didn't know what to do. And they actually... They actually sent her to a boarding school, which she got kicked out of, and then to stay at a pastor's, uh, friend, a friend pastor's house on the other side of the state, just to give me a last year of high school where I didn't have to deal with this. Um, I must tell you that um, it's the greatest regret of my life that um, I became so angry with her that I basically wrote her off. I wrote her off. We had intermittent contact uh, throughout our adult lives, um, but I, I wrote her off. I was so angry with what she had done to my parents, and you know, but my, my parents never wrote her off. They didn't. Um, and in, the, in her 30s, she began to develop uh, symptoms of a disease that I hope you've never heard of, it's called Huntington's disease. It's a degenerative neurological disorder for which there is no treatment and no cure, and it will kill you, and it takes a long time to do so. In the end, my parents took her in uh, and cared for her in their home as she was um, approaching, approaching death and loved her, and she's like a little baby again in the end. And I, I, I asked my dad, I said, how, how have you been able to do this? How can you embrace this calling that God has given to you to take care of her? And he told me about a dream he had. And there are dreams and then there are dreams. And sometimes you know this is saying something significant. This is the dream that he told me about. And by the way, just next week, it'll be the third anniversary of my, my dad's uh, passing. So I'm thinking about him quite a bit. 
He said he was having a dream and there's this long banqueting table and there's chaos all around, chaos all around. And he was getting increasingly frustrated about the chaos everywhere around him. And so he finally reached a boiling point and he slammed his fist down on the table and the cutlery jumped and he said, this is enough. And he heard this small voice that said, I'll tell you when it's enough. And he woke up. And he embraced the calling that God had given to him. Difficult calling, a storm. Because Jesus didn't calm the storm on the outside. But he communicated to him that he was still Lord of the situation and he calmed the storm that was raging on the inside. And Jesus will calm your storm. Scripture talks about God like a mother hen with chicks, gather them under their wings. So this morning, I would like you to imagine, if you would, when your pillow, when your head hits the pillow tonight, no matter what storm you may be facing, the words of this message to you, that your Lord is with you and he will calm your storm. Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven, it's a life verse for me. And this is very much the word of the Lord for you this morning. Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything do not be anxious about anything whatever situation this morning that you may be facing it may be a financial situation it may be a health situation it may be a family situation do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition Make your request known with thanksgiving. Not thanking him for the storm. Thanking him for his presence with you in the middle of that storm. And as we raise our request to him, something amazing, a divine miracle can happen. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts, that is your emotions, and your mind, that is your thinking, in Christ Jesus. As we raise our needs to him, he gives us a peace that we cannot work up within ourselves. You can't think your way to it. It comes as a divine gift to you, brothers and sisters, this morning. And I can say with assurance to you, 
peace. Be still. Peace. Be still. Let the Lord's peace come upon you. Peace. Be still. Let me pray for you. Father, I know in a congregation this size this morning uh, that there are certainly individuals who have carried into this place heavy burdens and they don't know why that you have led them into this storm they've not brought it upon themselves they are simply following you and here they are in the midst of it oh father hear the cry of their heart this morning Calm the storm. Father, calm the storm externally. Provide an answer to the situation that is miraculous. That they will look back and say, we didn't know how this would work, but the Lord calmed the storm and it's peace. And for those of them who, like my parents, um, the storm on the outside couldn't be stilled for those father give them a sense of your lordship your sovereignty and help them to lay their head on the pillow next to you and rest in you even in the middle of the storm asking all of this in Jesus' name. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Thank you very much. <laughs>